0: Good morning, Fellowship Greenville. So good to see you today. So glad you've chosen to worship with us. And if this is your first time with us, um, we wanna welcome you. We know there's lots of great churches here in Greenville and we're honored that you would uh, worship here with us on this cold, rainy Memorial Day. And uh, one reason I'm personally excited uh, that uh, you're here today is because uh, you've come at a very exciting time uh, for Fellowship Greenville. For the past couple of weeks, we've been talking about an opportunity that the elders have sensed uh, God has been leading us to embrace. And that opportunity is for Fellowship Greenville to become one church in two locations. Over the last uh, year or so, we have uh, seen God bring more and more people through our doors to the extent that uh, you can look around. I mean, we're, we're running out of space. And as the elders prayed about this, out of the blue... Um, God opened a door for us to purchase the Adams Mill YMCA property just six six miles down the road on Highway 14. And we did uh, the due diligence work of what it would take to purchase and renovate that property for it to become Fellowship Greenville Adams Mill. And we presented all that to you over the last couple of weeks. By the way, if you missed those messages, I encourage you to go And listen to them. And online, we've got a a brochure online that's entitled uh, Multiplying Our Community to Reach a Community. It lays out the whole plan. If you haven't seen that, I encourage you to go to our website and check that out. And last Sunday was the final day to vote to affirm your support for this plan that the elders have laid out. And I'm extremely happy to announce that the vote passed by 97.9%. That's 98 percent. Yeah. And um, in my 26 years of being here, that's the highest percentage affirmation we've ever had. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for praying with us about this opportunity, for supporting us and stepping out in faith with us as we follow what we sense to be the leading of the spirit in all of this. Now, if this is your first time here, one of the things that we want you to know about us is that If you attend here on a regular basis, most Sunday mornings, you'll find that we are teaching our way through whole books of the Bible or long passages of Scripture. One of our guiding principles here at Fellowship is that we are more expositional than topical in the way that we teach the Bible. Expositional just means that we go book by book, chapter by chapter, passage by passage. But um, most of the time in the summers, we'll take a break uh, from that, and we'll do a topical sp- uh, series and repent afterwards. But uh, um, this summer, we're doing a seri- series called Church Matters, and it matters uh, because uh, uh, for a Christian that not understand the true nature of the church, is kind of like a husband and wife not understanding what marriage is all about. Now, this, this um, uh, title, sermon series title, Church Matters, it's kind of a double entendre, which uh, means simply that a a word or a phrase, it has double meaning. The first meaning is that church matters. Jesus established his church, and for the past 2,000 years, he's been building his church, and so the church is extremely important in the plan and purposes of God on earth. Church matters, and we'll also be looking at church matters meaning the matters of the church, things that make a church a church, things like gospel preaching and congregational worship and observing baptism in the Lord's Supper, fellowship, membership, leadership, uh, generous giving, pneumatic decision, things like that. Today, though, I want to lay out the case that church matters, meaning it's not optional. It's not, you, you can't take it or leave it. It's not an afterthought, in the plan of God. No, church, according to the Bible, church matters. Now, when I say the word church, um, I wonder what's the first thing that pops into your mind. Uh, Maybe, for some of you, you think of a building with a steeple, kind of like what's in the back here, or a cathedral. Maybe you think of an institution like organized religion. Uh, Maybe you think of a denomination. Maybe you think of a, a bad experience you had growing up in the church or if you didn't grow up in a church, maybe you think of a group of very unkind, harsh, judgmental, self-righteous people. Sadly, maybe maybe you were even kind of spiritually abused in a church at some point. Maybe when you hear the word church, you think about all the hypocrites in the church or that that the church is always talking about money. Or maybe you think about all the bad things that the church has done over the centuries like crusades and uh, in, in, inquisitions and holy wars and southern slavery and greed, or, or sadly, like what I heard on the radio this past week, maybe conjures up th- uh, thoughts of church leaders who abuse children and no one holds the perpetrators accountable for all that. Maybe even though you don't, uh, even though you do go to church on a fairly regular basis, maybe you don't really consider church all that important because, to your way of thinking you say, well, I can worship God just as well at the lake as I can on a Sunday morning in church. Or maybe when you think of church, you think about what we're doing right here, right now. So the church uh, word church conjures up all kinds of thoughts and feelings and definitions. And so it's very important that we define our terms or better said, it's more important that we let Jesus define our terms because if you define church in a way that's out of sync with how Jesus defines church and how the writers of the New Testament talk about the church, then you're going to miss out on an essential part of the life that Jesus died to give you and your experience with God will suffer. So question, how did Jesus talk about his church? And to answer that question, I want to start with a passage that Jason's mentioned twice in the last month or so, because this passage is foundational to everything we will be talking about this summer, and the passage is found in Matthew chapter 16. By the way, uh, lots of you have been asking me about when our next trip to Israel might be, and I want you to know that I've been talking to Morningstar Tours, a uh, company that we've gone with uh, three times now, but I've been talking with Morningstar Star about getting another Israel trip on the calendar, and I'll let you know when, it, when that comes about. Um, the amazing thing, though, about going to Israel is that you actually get to stand in places that you've read about in the Bible, maybe for some of you, all of your life. Now, I know for me, before going to Israel, I would read Bible studies, uh, Bible stories, and I would have these, these cartoon Sunday school flannel graph pictures in my head as to where certain Bible stories took place. But going there and being there, I now have a real picture of where David fought Goliath. I have a real picture of what it's like to be on the Sea of Galilee. I I have a picture in my head about where Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount or where Elijah had it out with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel or what the garden tomb may have looked like. But one picture I have burned in my memory is the setting of Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 to 18, a place called Caesarea Philippi. And you notice on the map here, the Caesarea Philippi is way up here in the very, very far north of Israel, because way down, way down here, you know, I need to take lessons from Chris Justice on how to, well, anyway, you see where Jerusalem is down there. whether people can do that really well. But anyway, so Caesarea is way up in the north. Now, Jesus has been doing ministry uh, in Magdala there on the west side of the Sea of Galilee. And when he finished up there, he takes his disciples on their senior trip all the way up to Caesarea Philippi in the north. Now, what you need to know about Caesarea Philippi, it was like going to Bourbon Street in New Orleans. Which, by the way, in 1972, my pastor took a group of high school seniors from Melbourne, Florida, da- to Dallas, Texas, to go to Expo 72. And if you saw the movie, The Jesus Revolution, you may remember that. I was there in the cotton bowl right there at the end. I was there. And, uh, but on the way to Dallas, we stopped off in New Orleans and we ate uh, supper at a swanky restaurant called the Court of Two Sisters. And then we walked down Bourbon Street at night, which was, to say the least, shocking. Now, later, the preacher said he really wanted us to see what sin was really like. (laughs) And we fundamentalist church kids, we couldn't believe our eyes, partially because we kept them closed most of the time. Well, maybe one eye open, anyway. Because uh, I've never seen anything like that before. But anyway, so Jesus takes his disciples all the way up to Caesarea Philippi, 25-mile hike into the middle of nowhere. And I am quite certain that these young men were shocked to see that Jesus had taken them to the outskirts of a thriving center of pagan worship, which included every form of Bourbon Street sexual perversion imaginable from cult prostitution Uh, to bestiality. Now, here's an artist's rendering of what Caesarea Philippi looked like back in Jesus' day. Now, that huge rock in the back there served as the backdrop for 14 different temples. Several different gods were worshiped there, but the main god that was worshiped in Caesarea Philippi was the Greek god Pan, Pan was the god of uh, uh, shepherds and music and fertility. He was half man, half goat, played a flute. And the Greeks believed that Pan was born in the cave behind the big temple on the left there. If you look above the roof line, you can see kind of a dark shape. There's a cave back there, and they believed that Pan was born in that cave. And the cave was known as the Gates of Hell. The Greeks believed this was the entrance to the underworld, to Hades, and dating all the way back to Old Testament times, pagan peoples offered animal animal and human sacrifices to their gods there. Now, at that time, water flowed down from the snow-capped mountains in the north, Mount Hermon to be specific, uh, and they flowed through the mouth of the cave, which is the source of the Jordan River. And again, in this cave sacrifices, both animals and human, were offered so on days of sacrifice the water flowed blood red with corpses flowing in the the water. Now, what I want you to see is this. Jesus took his men from the pleasant little village of Magdala. He took them all the way to the north of Israel to this pagan center for idol worship I guess he wanted them to see what sin was like. Um, but he took them all the way up there to ask them one question. And the question is found in Matthew 16, 13. Look at it. Now when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? Who do people say the Son of Man is? So Jesus directs their attention away from the God Pan to the God-man. Verse 14, and they said... Uh, Some say you're John the Baptist, come back to life. Some say Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? And here's the Peter Pan connection. See what I did there? Like I worked hard on that. That deserves a little more acknowledgement here. Yeah, okay, all right. (laughs) Verse 16. And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven has revealed it to you. And I tell you, you're Peter, Rocky, that's what his name meant, and on this rock I'll build my church and the gates of hell will not overpower it. Now notice the centerpiece of Jesus' commendation of, of uh, Peter's rock solid faith here. He says, I will build my church. I will build my church on that confession faith right there. I will build my church out of people who confess their faith in me as the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior King, who believe in me, trust in me as the Son of God, the chosen one, the sent one. And he says, and the gates of hell will not overpower it. Meaning, Nothing will ever stop me from building my church. Nothing in heaven or on earth will be able to overpower the advancement of the church. Now think about this. Jesus likes double entendres too. Because think, where is he? Where, what's he looking at as he makes this proclamation? What are his disciples looking at? They're looking at this large rock filled with insets for pagan idols, a large temple covering the mouth of a cave that is known as the gates of hell where evil spirits are supposed to be coming and going back and forth between earth and hell. And Jesus says, one day my church will crush all of this. My church will not only be able to stand against evil and immorality, but my church will triumph over it. So remember, here's what Jesus and the boys are looking at. And this is what it looks like today. Yeah, you see in this, this is a word picture of this prophecy. Because year after year, people of faith, the people of Jesus' church visit this place and they gaze at the ruins of this pagan temple complex and the church is strong, and the pagan temple complex lays in ruins. You see in this, yes, Jesus has been building his church, growing his church out of people who place their faith and trust in him as their Messiah, as their Savior King, and one day, evil and idolatry will be crushed under Jesus' feet, and his church will be standing strong, and those two pictures illustrate it, and that means No matter how dark things are now, no matter how dark things may get in the future, means you and I are on the winning team, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, here's my point. The church matters because it matters to Jesus. Jesus has been telling his disciples that he's going to Jerusalem to die and rise from the dead. He takes them all the way to the north in Caesarea Philippi to ask them the question, to draw out a rock-solid confession of faith of who he really is. And he's saying, after I'm gone, I will build my church, and it will take my place in the world, and it will carry my mission forward in the world, and nothing, no nothing will ever stop it. That's what he's saying. You see how much the church matters to Jesus? He's the architect and builder of the church. He died and rose again from the dead to bring the church into existence. He promises to preserve and protect his church until he comes back and puts every enemy under his feet. Oh yeah, the church matters. Because it matters to Jesus. That's my first point, all right? Second point. The church matters because by its very nature and definition, it is unique from other forms of Christian gathering or personal worship. It's unique from other forms of Christian gatherings or personal worship. Now, let me prove that to you. We have to ask the question, so what exactly did Jesus mean by church? He's gonna build his church. What does he mean by that? Let's unpack it. Now, the word that Jesus uses here, we, as the word that we translate church, that word is the Greek word ekklesia, which means gathering And back in the day, ekklesia referred to any kind of assembly or gathering. The um, Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures, translated uh, the Hebrew word kahal as ecclesia, And kahal is a word that's frequently used in the Old Testament to refer to the children of Israel gathered to worship and to hear Yahweh's instructions. So the Hebrew word kahal was translated into the Greek word ekklesia. Both of them mean gathering, but over time, ekklesia began to refer to the gathering of God's people. However, the English word church here in Matthew 16 is not really connected to the word ekklesia. It actually came from an old German word that got translated into an old Saxon, old English word, which is still used in certain places in Great Britain. And that word is kirk, which means a place of worship, a building where God's people meet for worship. But the word Jesus used here is "ecclesia," referring to a gathering of people, not the building where people gather. You follow me here? This is so very important. Jesus promised, he prophesied, predicted a gathering. He didn't predict cathedrals and church buildings. He predicted a place. He didn't predict a place. He predicted a people, a community of faith to carry forward his mission in the world. And he says, nothing, not my death, not your death, no power in heaven or hell or on earth, Nothing will stop it, and that's what exactly what he did, and that's what he continues to do. He is building his church. In fact, if you're a Christ follower, you, you are a fulfillment of that prophecy 2,000 years ago, or even better, we, together, worshiping here together, we are the fulfillment of that 2,000-year-old prophecy. Now, by the way, here's an interesting factoid. William Tyndall was the first person to translate the Bible into English from the original languages, Hebrew and Greek. And when he was translating the New Testament, when he got to this statement here in Matthew 16, 18, that says, on this rock I will build my ecclesia, he looked at at, at the Greek word, he looked at the Latin Vulgate translation, he looked at German translations of the Bible, and he was like, wait a minute, they all say church, Kirk, but this is ecclesia, Ecclesia isn't a kirk, a church. It's not a building. It's not a place of worship, but Ecclesia is a gathering of people. It's a congregation. So in the very first English translation of the Bible, William, the Tyndall translation, Matthew 16, 18 reads, I will build my congregation. In fact, in the very first English translation of the Bible, you don't find the word church anywhere. Because when uh, William Tyndall got it right on this church, I On this rock, I will build my congregation. So like in 1 Corinthians 1-2, Paul begins the letter. He says, from Paul, an apostle, to the congregation of God in Corinth. Or in Galatians 1-2, from Paul, the apostle, to the congregations in Galatia. Or in Philemon, it's from Paul and Timothy to the congregation that meets in your house. Now, to me, that's refreshing, isn't it? I mean, translating ecclesia as congregation brings a picture of God's gathered people to mind. Translating ecclesia as church usually brings a building in mind. So, pulling all these thoughts together, here's my working definition of ecclesia, what we call a church. A church is a particular gathering of Christ followers who meet in a specific location to hear and respond to God's word in congregational worship as they work together to move Jesus' mission forward in the world. It's a particular gathering of Christ followers. They meet in a specific location. They meet to hear and respond to God's word in congregational worship and they work together to move Jesus' mission forward into the world. Now that is the true nature of the church. And again, the church is not a building. It is not the building. And it's hard for us to let go of that idea, isn't it? Because we walk into some places and we go, wow, this is a beautiful church. And there's nothing wrong with beautiful churches and having nice buildings. But, but, but church is not the building. Now, you have heard it said, you don't go to church, you are the church. How many of you have heard a preacher say that? I probably said that twenty years ago. You know, um, well, that's that's true. You you don't go to church. You are the church. That's true, kinda. If when you talk about going to church, you're talking about going to a building at thirty-one, sixty-one South Highway fourteen, then you're right. You don't go to church. You are the church. But there is a sense in which it is true that we go to church if we mean by church a particular gathering of God's people who meet weekly in a specific location to hear and respond to God's word in worship, if that's your definition, then you go to church. You came to church, not the building. You came to this assembly, this gathering of God's people, and so it's right and proper to say you go to church. Now, I use the word particular, a particular gathering, because it's clear in scripture that any gathering, just any gathering of of two or more Christians doesn't necessarily constitute what the New Testament regards as a church. Like bumping into a Christian friend in the grocery store and talking about what you got out of your quiet time that morning doesn't mean that that interaction in the ice cream aisle is church. A community group is not church. A Bible study is not a church could become one, but fellowship, uh, but the fellowship you enjoy in a small group is not church, not the way the New Testament talks about it. Sitting at home in your pajamas, sipping coffee, watching our Sunday worship service online is not church. Now, you can be encouraged in your faith by watching on, online and you can keep up with our sermon series by watching online and you can worship between sips of coffee by singing along with the worship team online, maybe. But so-called online worship is not church. And I would say if that has become church for you, you're really, truly missing out, and I'm gonna talk more about that in a minute. And no, you cannot worship God at the lake just like you can worship God in church on Sunday morning. Cannot do it. Now, there's a former evangelical megachurch pastor who began to elevate his ideas and thoughts over Scripture, and he has said something to the effect I don't go to church anymore. I church at the beach when I'm surfing with my friends. I'm sorry. No, you don't. You most certainly do not church while you're surfing at the beach. Now, not that, not that he would care what I think, but if you use a word that Jesus uses and you use it in a completely different way than he de- defines it, like for one thing, church for Jesus is a noun, it's not, a, it's not a verb, but if you elevate your thoughts and ideas about the church over how Jesus and the writers of the New Testament define the church, then you will most definitely miss out on something that God has in store for you. Listen, yes, of course, of course, you can worship God personally and privately wherever you are, and you should. You can pray and thank God for the beauty of the lake and the trees and the mountains and the breeze and the sun and the sky and the sand and the waves. Of course, you can and should worship God personally and privately. In fact, those who worship God privately get more out of corporate worship than anybody else. But when Jesus said on this rock, I will build my growing gathering of of my people He had something altogether different from your own personal private times of worship or what happens in the one anothering fellowship of a community group. You see, there are several important things that make a church a church. Things that make it unique and different from a small group Bible study or your time of personal worship. And this leads me to the second meaning of double entendre that I I mentioned earlier. There are certain church matters That according to the New Testament must be present for a gathering of God's people to be a church. Again, uh, things like gospel preaching and congregational worship and observing baptism in the Lord's Supper and fellowship and membership and leadership and organization and leaders seeking the Spirit's leadership for the community of faith and collective generosity and serving and being a contributing member to the body of Christ, all those kind of things. We'll unpack some of those this summer. But according to the New Testament, all of those ingredients make up a particular local weekly gathering of Christ followers that, that we call the church, the church that Jesus promised to build. Now, sidebar, Sometimes, but not as often as you think, but sometimes the word church is used to refer to all the people of God, dead or alive, from all the ages, which is sometimes referred to as the universal church. And according to Paul, spiritually speaking, we are seated, we, you and I, right now, we're seated, seated here, but we're also seated in the heavenly places in Christ. So wherever we happen to find ourselves on earth, we're a part of the multitude, that vast multitude, timeless multitude, a spiritual gathering in heaven. Now the writer of Hebrews talks about this. He lays it all out for us in Hebrews chapter 12, and he contrasts the gathering of the children of Israel at Mount Sinai with the true nature of God's people today, the church universal. Look at this, Hebrews 12, 18. You've not come to a physical mountain, to a place of flaming fire, darkness, gloom, and whirlwind, as the Israelites did at Mount Sinai. For they heard an awesome trumpet blast and a voice so terrible that they begged God to stop speaking. And Moses himself was so frightened at the the sight, he said, I'm terrified and trembling. You didn't come to that. No, you've come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to countless thousands of angels in joyful assembly, gathering. You have come to the assembly, the ecclesia of God's firstborn children, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God himself, who is the judge over all things. You have come to the spirits of the righteous ones in heaven, who have now been made perfect, You've come to Jesus, the one who mediates the new covenant between God and people. That's the universal church. And we see it again in Revelation. We get a picture of it in Revelation 5 as, a, as the heavenly gathering of all God's people from across all the ages. And in one sense, in Christ, you're already there, which just blows my mind. But in another sense, we're not there yet. And the local church is a kind of outpost for this heavenly gathering of the ultimate church. So again, when Paul writes to the church of God in Corinth, he's writing to a local gathering of believers who happen to be in the city of Corinth. And that's their physical, earthly location. And they constitute the church of God in that place. And that means that we, Fellowship Greenville, we, right here, right now, we are the embodiment of the universal church in this location. So when Jesus said, I will build my congregation, he wasn't referring as much to the universal church as he was talking about the local church, the church that he's he's growing and multiplying. Now, how do I know that? That's a good question because you ought to make me prove that to you. So I will. All right, I know that because of what happened in the book of Acts. The church that Jesus said he would build came into being in Acts chapter two on the day of Pentecost. The day of, the, of Pentecost was the opening day of the local church. Jesus began building his church on that day and we read the story of Jesus building his church in the rest of the book of Acts. Acts. You see, when Jesus said, I will build my church, he was telling us that it would involve a process that would take time, time for it to grow and to develop and to multiply. And in the book of Acts, we see that process. In the beginning, we see a particular gathering of Christ followers who met in homes to hear the apostles preach. And uh, they met in homes for worship and fellowship to generously serve those inside the community and outside the community of faith. And those gatherings, they got bigger and bigger as the Lord added to their number, those who were being saved, and those gatherings multiplied. They spread from one city to another city, from Judea and Samaria and Syria and Greece and all the way to Rome. And hear me, the story of the church in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, and and the rest of the letters is not simply the story of disciples making disciples. It's the story of disciples making disciples and gathering them together in local, weekly, organized meetings, some in homes and some in buildings. But as the story continued the groups in the early chapters of Acts, they had to have more organization to care for and disciple the people that God was bringing to their gatherings. I mean, it just wasn't possible for the 12 apostles to be in all the places where the churches were being planted. And so they appointed elders and deacons in every city as local churches multiplied. And God also gave to the church people, men and women, He gave them spiritual gifts of teaching and prophecy and pastoring and administration and generosity and service so that they all worked together in the body of Christ, meaning the local church, so that it was knitted and held together in love as each part did its work. And all of those gifted and called people became the organizational foundation that went on to build up the body of Christ. Now, do you see how the church, as it's defined and it developed in the New Testament times, do you see how it's more than a Bible study or a community group? Do you see how you can't do church at the lake or the beach? Why not? Because the church is a particular gathering of God's people who are organized to meet together in a particular location to hear and respond to God's word in congregational worship and through the word and worship, they are built up together in their faith and through the word and worship, they're sent out to carry Jesus' mission forward into the world by making disciples and bringing them into his church. And sometimes by planting churches in other locations, just like we see in the book of Acts. This is the true nature of Ecclesia. This is the true nature of Jesus' prophecy. This is how Jesus defined it, this is how he designed it, and this is how He's built it, he developed it. So, review, the church matters because it matters to Jesus. Secondly, the church matters because it's, by its very nature and definition, it's unique from personal worship and other forms of Christian gathering. And third, the church matters because in congregational worship, you can experience God in a way That's impossible anywhere else. In congregational worship, you can experience God in a way that you cannot experience him anywhere else. At least that's how it's supposed to be. Now, interestingly enough, there are no manuals for how to do church found in the New Testament, but as you read through the New Testament, we do see that the church met weekly, usually on Sunday, first day of the week. We know there was preaching but we're not told how long the preachers preached. We do know that on one occasion, Paul had a marathon sermon that went on to midnight, and there was a guy sitting in the windowsill, and he fell asleep, and he fell out the window, and he died. His name was Eutychus, and the joke is Eutychus too, if you would have fell out the window. Uh, I, I keep thinking everybody's heard that, but every time I say it, there's still people that never heard that. Now, here's the deal. We try to keep it just south of that here. Uh, oh, for sure. We do have people fall asleep. Uh, so, but so far, we haven't had any injuries when people have fallen out into the aisles. Uh, no, that hasn't happened. But uh, we did remove the chamomile tea from the coffee bar out front. Uh, we, we felt like that was a contributing factor to people falling asleep. but We know there was singing, but we're not told much about the lyrics of the songs or the style of music that they sang or the particular song, how many songs they sang or how loud the volume of the music was or who got to pick the music. Don't know any of that. Uh, we know they baptized new converts and we know they observed the Lord's Supper on a regular basis, but we're not told exactly how often they did either one of those things. And just as I said, that they, 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 we know there were, there were leaders, elders and deacons, who were trained and appointed to shepherd and serve the church, and that there were other gifted leaders who served in various capacities in the growing gatherings. We do know that the church was unlike any organization in that day. It was unlike it because n- n- men and women didn't gather together, but they did in the church. Slaves and free people didn't assemble together and me together, but they did in church. Educated, uneducated people, poor, rich, they didn't congregate together, but they did in the church. And this diverse group of people, because of their common faith and focus on Jesus, they lived together in unity of heart and mind and purpose. There was absolutely nothing like the church back in the day. Now, my point is this. We have a vague idea of what went on in the local weekly gathering of God's people, but clearly what went on in those meetings was unique from other gatherings of ancient people. But one thing we know for sure was that when the church met together, God showed up in very real, tangible, and powerful ways. And we get a glimpse of that in 1 Corinthians 14. Now, interestingly enough, when Paul wrote the letter we call 1 Corinthians, he addressed the congregation in Corinth in glowing terms. He says, you guys have been sanctified in Jesus. You've been set apart to God. You've been called together as saints made holy. Uh, He talks about how in this congregation, they have powerful, spirit-filled preachers. And in this congregation, they have all the spiritual gifts that are are manifested, they're being manifested. And in this congregation, they, they're talked about as they are in fellowship with Jesus. But even with all that, it certainly could have been possible for somebody to say of the church in Corinth, oh, that church is full of hypocrites because it was full of people problems. There was pride and division not calling out serious sexual immorality in the congregation, irreverent selfishness when, it, when they were observing the Lord's Supper, conflicts over spiritual gifts that created disorder and confusion in church meetings. The congregation in Corinth was a hot mess. And in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul addresses some of the confusion and disorder. Now, I'm not going to read the whole chapter because there are so many thoughts and ideas and things that are said in this chapter that I would have to explain, and it would take two or three messages to explain it all. Things like the misunderstanding and misuse of tongues in congregational worship and problems with prophetic utterances and problems with maintaining order in the service and problematic women in church meetings and that kind of thing. No way I can unpack all that, but There's one part of this chapter that has always amazed me, and it really undergirds my third point. Paul gives us a glimpse into what a congregational meeting in Corinth was like. He describes something of what went on. Now, he's describing, he's not prescribing He's not saying this should characterize all the churches. He's not saying it did characterize all the churches. He's just describing something that went on there. And down in verse 26 of chapter 14, he says, my paraphrase, when you meet together, one will sing, one will teach, another might uh, speak of a special revelation God is giving. And then he says, boils it all down. Just make sure that everything you do, do is done decently and in order. And in the verses just before that, he's talking about how speaking in tongues in a weekly meeting can be confusing to a newcomer if they come to church and they can't understand anything that's going on in the service and it just sounds like a bunch of gibberish and babbling. He says, if that happens, newcomers, will just they're just gonna conclude that you're all a bunch of crazy people. But he also says, if there's order and unity in the gathering... And if there's a clear word from God spoken by the leaders, he says, if if an unbeliever comes into a meeting like that, it's very possible that they might come under the conviction of God's truth and he'll fall on his face and worship God saying, God is really among you. Now, the point is, when God's people gather for weekly worship, when they sing loud and strong in worship, when they hear the word of God taught in clear and understandable ways, when they serve each other and show hospitality to newcomers, then God can show up in a uniquely powerful way so much so that you and other people know that he is in the room with you. I wonder how many of you can say, I have been in worship services in this place and I know God is in the room with me. How many? Raise your hand high. Okay, right there. Right there it is. Listen, if you come to church anticipating God will show up, if you come expecting to meet him here If you open yourself up to his spirit working in you and through you, listen, you can and will experience God being in the midst of his people in a way that you can't experience anywhere else. Why? Because you're not in the midst of his people. Listen, again, I can personally worship God in my car singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs with Shane and Shane. And I do. And I love it. You can personally worship God online when it's not possible for you to come to this gathering, and I'm glad we have online. We can personally worship God in beautiful outdoor locations, but you cannot and will not experience God in personal worship like you can in congregational worship. Not according to the Bible, you can't. Now, I will say, if you're living a lifestyle of personal worship, and you come to church with that heart, you'll get a whole lot more out of congregational worship. On Sunday mornings, I see people on the stage leading in worship that I know are singing through tears and fears. I look around the auditorium and I stand next to people who are singing and worshiping God, even though they've been disappointed because by, by God and they're disappointed in God because he didn't answer a prayer that they were fervently praying, but they're praising him anyway. I see hurting and broken people with smiles and hands lifted, and I see them clapping, and I see them joyfully experiencing God in the midst of his people in a way that wasn't possible before they walked in the back of the door. They they come in, and you come in, and. you you hear the word of God taught in a way that encourages you and builds you up in your faith you worship God with others who despite their hurts and fears and disappointments and confusion you come in there and, and you're seeking to live out what it means to be the body of Christ by serving one another in all the various ministries of the church you give yourself to encouraging one another and welcoming newcomers so much so do you know what the number one thing people write on their evaluations after attending a worship service here. Number one thing. It's not the preaching, though they do like the preaching. It's not the singing, though they do like the worship. It's not next-gen ministry, even though they're very complimentary of our kids' ministry and our, our student ministries. The number one thing they write about is you. They're blown away by you. They they say things like the people are, are warm and welcoming. The parking lot team was so helpful and hospitable. The people smile and you can tell they actually like coming to church. I never really liked going to church until I came here. They talk about how quickly they came to feel like they're one of us, or how, big, how a big church like Fellowship Greenville feels like a small church. And they'll say, the people made me feel right at home here. They say, I've never worshiped anywhere like I worship here. They say, I've never heard the Bible taught in a way that I can understand, but do the preachers always preach 45 minutes or more? <laughs> now, what they're saying is, and sometimes they say it just like this, but they're saying... God is truly among you. God is truly among you. And it's not really about you, is it? It's about Christ in you. That's what they're sensing. That's what they're experiencing. And I just want you to know how so very thankful I am for all of you and you being this kind of gathering it's great to be able to preach a message like this and know I'm not fussing at anybody because you guys know this. Well, maybe those of you online, it's time. Yeah, you. Here, Listen, as Jesus continues to build his church in our world today, he also continues to show up in the midst of his gathered people in ways that you will not or cannot experience in other kinds of gatherings. So, you see why the church matters? It matters because it matters to Jesus. It matters because, by its very nature, the church is unique in how it worships and serves and is on mission together. And it matters because you can experience God in local weekly gatherings of His people in ways that's impossible anywhere else. So I beg you, do not let the church, do not let the world infect you with a low view of Jesus' church. The church is his bride. Don't let imperfect Christians make you think less of Jesus' church than he does. If Jesus loves imperfect people and if he loves imperfect churches, like the church in Corinth, then maybe we can learn to do that too. And don't tell yourself that you're just fine on your own at the lake or at the beach or watching from home or just hanging out with a group of Christian friends in a coffee shop. I'm not saying those things are bad, those things are good. There's lots of good in all those things. But they're not the same as being a worshiping, contributing member of Jesus' local church. The author Hebrews puts it this way. He says, let's think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. And let us not neglect our meeting together as some people do, but instead come together to worship and to encourage one another especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. Father God, I thank you that you not only reveal yourself to us in your word, but you, Holy Spirit, have inspired this word to inspire us. So I ask that you would take this word that we have looked at today And inspire us to have a high view of the church that Jesus died to bring into existence. Give us hearts. Give us minds to believe that the church matters because it matters so much to you. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.